0: a picture of a guy named James. James was Jesus's brother or technically, I guess, half brother because Jesus wasn't Joseph's kid. Uh, but this is a picture of James. Actually, obviously we don't know what James looked like. This is an this is an old painting, but I thought that guy's got a cool beard. I'm going to use that picture. Cause that's pretty cool. If I ever grew, could grow a beard that long, that would be great. And his, his story is fascinating to me because here's a guy who is right in the middle in some ways of everything. And yet the Bible is very clear. That he didn't always buy it. He didn't always follow Jesus. He, in fact, he was very opposed to the idea of Jesus' ministry for a long time. So I want us to, to dive into his uh, life for just a second, kind of gets kicked off. We won't spend the whole time there. Uh, but I want to warn you, today has a lot more scripture than normal. We always pull things out of the Bible and look at the Bible, but today has a lot of scripture. So if you're a note taker, you may want to jot down references and then look them up later. In fact, on your way out, if you haven't done this before, we have these booklets here uh, online. You know, outside, it just allows you to put all your notes there together. to just thought it was a good week to remind you of that. Uh, they cost us $5, so we pass that cost on to you. But if you need a book and you don't have $5, we'd love to have you just take a book and we'll, we'll figure that all out. So grab one of those on the way out. If you don't have something to take notes on, that might be helpful. Because today, about James, to kind of get us kicked off, we're going to look at seven different passages from his life. Four passages prior to his world being turned upside down. And then we're going to look at that passage where it's all flipped around. And then two to see what happened afterwards. So the first passage comes out of the early in Jesus' ministry. In fact, it was Jesus' first miracle. He was at a wedding in Cana. And he turned water into wine. You may have heard of that before. John chapter 2 says, when, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him, the, the, his 12 followers. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed for a few days. Now, John's subtle here, but he says that that you have the disciples with Jesus, his mother and brothers with Jesus, but his his disciples believe because of the miracle, but not necessarily his mother and brothers. You notice that? Second verse is out of Matthew 13, where it says, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there, coming to his hometown, coming to Nazareth. He began to teach the people in the synagogue, and they were amazing. Where did this man get this wisdom and miraculous powers? He was just a kid from down the street. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And aren't all his sisters with us? This is a little later in Jesus' ministry. I highlighted James's name to make sure you're clear. He is one of four brothers. The picture I showed you before—it's one of his four brothers—and he was living there in Nazareth as he grew up. Passage three is out of Mark chapter three. It says then Jesus entered a house. And again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said he's out of his mind. So you have Mary, James, and his other brothers going to take charge of him. Joseph was probably dead at this point. So Mary, his mom, uh, James, and his brothers think he's out of his mind. It actually gets worse from here. Passage number four is out of John chapter 7. says after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go down in Judea. So he stayed up in the northern part of the country, not the southern part of Judea. Because in Judea, the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, look what Jesus' brother said. Jesus' brother said to him, "Won't you leave Galilee in the north and go down to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. For no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers didn't believe in him. Now, this is fascinating to me. His brothers in the northern part of the country are saying, "Once not you go down south since you want to be a public figure. It's like Jesus had an Instagram handle or something like Since you want to be a, 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 known as an influencer, once not you go on south knowing that down south is where they wanted to kill him. His brothers were looking for a way to knock Jesus off. And the Bible, kind of unflinchingly, just records it as is. It's powerful. Fast forward ahead a little more. Jesus is arrested. He dies on a cross. And we don't read anything when he dies on a cross about his brothers even being there. You get the picture Mary was there, but you get the picture that she was there by herself with a few of her friends. The, the boys didn't show up. It's like they, they were so rejecting of him. It's like they saw his death as the end of a, you know, an unfortunate conclusion of a misguided life. Like here, Jesus had blown his life, blown his leadership, blown his opportunities, and now finally it's all coming to an end. The embarrassment's over. Jesus dies on the cross. He's buried in a tomb. Everyone goes home. A couple days later, his tomb's empty. And those closest to him began to talk about how he appeared to them, and he, they saw him alive. The early church records all the people he talked to. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas or Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom were still living when Paul wrote this. Though some have died, some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Then he appeared to James. You know, I hear a lot of people say when they get to heaven, they want to ask God about why did he allow this or why did he do that? When I get to heaven, I want to binge watch videos of all the interactions from scripture that we read about and couldn't see. And this is probably number one on my list. Jesus going to James after he was risen saying, I was right all along. It was all true. Now I picture Jesus being very humble and gentle. I'd have been sassy. I'd have been like, oh, I want to be a public figure, huh? I want to show myself to the world, huh? I'm pretty sure Jesus was better than me, but that's how I would have done it had I been Jesus. Jesus is about to turn uh, James' world completely upside down. James is going to go from a skeptic to being an influencer in this church, Look what happens. So Jesus ascended into heaven, and Acts chapter 1 says, Then the apostles, after the ascension, returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of Olives, about a Sabbath day's walk from the city, a little over half a mile. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying, and then it lists the apostles. Those present were Peter, John, James. This is not James's brother; This is James, an apostle. And Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James. There's 11 of them. Judas Iscariot would have been 12. He had, he had committed suicide at this point. So it says there's the tw- 11 disciples. And then it continues in verse 14. It says, they, the disciples, all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those four words, Luke is very suddenly saying his brothers are coming around. James is now with them. And what changed with James. The only thing that changed was he talked to Jesus alive. And after he knew he was dead, he may have watched that from a distance, we don't know, but he knew he was dead, he knew he got buried, he saw his mom grieving, and then now he met Jesus in the flesh. He met him in person. And his whole world was turned upside down. Fast forward several years later, Galatians 2, Paul talks about getting established into the early church as a leader by the church leaders. And look who appoints him there. Galatians two nine says, James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. James has now gone from being an opponent, a skeptic and an opponent, to now being an observer and a participant and a, finally a leader. His, his world is completely turned upside down. He went from being outside the church a few years ago to now he's not only in the church and participating in the church, he's leading the church. Everything's changed for him. Can you imagine what that would be like to see somebody go through that kind of transformation? I mean, the church now can't even imagine James without, like, what would the church be like if James wasn't here? And that's the thing I've seen so often that God has done here at Wellspring. is people, I'll meet people, and this, it'll be their first Sunday or their th- second or third Sunday or something, and I'll get to know them, and I'll get, to, get to, to spend time with them, and then they'll begin to meet people, and they'll get in a group, and they'll be, start being a part of things. And a couple years down the road, maybe a few months down the road, it's like I can't even imagine Wellspring without them. Some of you weren't uh, even in Spring Hill two, three years ago, and now I can't imagine Wellspring without you because you've just you've been a part and God has so often done that not only in conjunction with people moving here, but people giving their lives to Christ. And their whole faith journey happens right here in this place. James' world was turned upside down. He went from being an opponent to faith to now he's part of something larger than himself. And that's an invitation God gives to all of us, to, to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. This kind of change wasn't unusual. I, I took some moments to highlight James because I think it's a fascinating story. But, but Jesus did this again and again and again in the early church. The, the, the city of Jerusalem and the, the region around it, the first century world, wasn't changed because of what Jesus said or because of what the disciples taught. The first century world was changed because of what people saw. Jesus was killed and then he was alive again. and He, he appeared to people. Jesus' resurrection literally turned the world upside down. I, I think when you read along through the, 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 the book of Acts, sometimes you don't pick up on just how quickly and dramatically this happened. So I want to take just a few minutes to do that. Again, lots of verses today, so you can jot that down if you want to do it. Uh, we, we talked last week about how the first Sunday when the church was launched, uh, Acts 2.41 says those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to that number that day. We said that was 3,000 men. They, they didn't typically count women in censuses, so probably another 3,000 women, three or 4,000 kids, and I said probably at least 750 people who had moved from California looking for a church. So now you've got like 10,000 people uh, in this church, and this is a relatively small city. We don't know exactly how big it was, but first century Jerusalem was far bigger than Spring Hill. It probably wasn't as big as Nashville, but far bigger than Spring Hill, and yet this church is already 10,000 people on day one. A few verses later, Acts 2.47 says, The Lord added to their number daily, those who are being saved. At least 365 new people added to their faith every year. For perspective, the average church in America is under 100 people, and yet they were adding three times that number every year to their church. Fast forward to Acts four. 4. Many who heard the message believed, and the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So now 5,000 men, 5,000 women, 5,000 kids, probably another 1,200 from California looking for the church. This church is exploding. 514, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. What you're getting is a picture of this constant growth and surging of the church. Later in that same chapter, verse 27 says the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. The high priest says, "We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood." That phrase, you're, "you filled Jerusalem with your teaching." What does it look like to have a community bigger than Spring Hill filled with the teaching of Jesus? It, it can't be just one person's voice. Peter can't fill the city of Jerusalem with its teaching. Thousands of people were talking about Jesus in their homes and at their workplace and in the marketplace. The church had filled Jerusalem with teachings about Jesus, not just about what he said and did, but what, he, but what had happened. A dead man rose to life again. And now the religious leaders are kind of freaking out, so they bring them in and say, hey, you've got to knock that off. You've got to stop doing it. And I want you to notice something here. The high priest does not use Jesus' name. You see that? He clearly would have known Jesus' name, but he doesn't use Jesus' name. He said, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. You're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Why wouldn't he call him by name? We don't know. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us. We can speculate. But I think it was a defense mechanism. I think the high priest knew there was good reasons to consider, to reconsider, maybe what Jesus said was true. But he had all of these reasons not to. It was going to cost him too much. It would probably cost him his job. It would cost him his influence. It would cost him connections to other priests and family members. Like, it would, it would require him to be really humble and say he had been wrong. And he just wasn't willing to even consider that. So I'm going to keep Jesus over here emotionally. I'm not even going to let him pass my guard. I'm just, it's this man and this word and this name. I'm not even going to acknowledge who he is because I've got to keep him over here. Acts chapter 6. This growing, swelling church has a, a structural snag. If you've ever grown a business, those happen as you grow. And so some people weren't being cared for, and they had to kind of restructure things a bit. You can read that in Acts 6. But when they did that, after they fixed it, Acts 6-7 says, The word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. It just makes me laugh. So the the idea of zero to 10 or 15, 20,000, that was just kind of gradual growth. But now, once they fix that, now it's going to upturn and increase rapidly. This is just a crazy picture to me. The church literally exploded onto the scene. I've titled this message Explosion because of the way the church grew. Now, we don't know how exact numbers to consider of, of how big the church was or how big Jerusalem was, honestly, at that time. But estimates that I've read say within the first few years of the church, as many as half the city had given their life to Christ and converted, and became Christians. Now, I said a moment ago, Jerusalem was, was far bigger than Spring Hill. Well, let's just reduce it down to Spring Hill size. What would happen in Spring Hill if twenty five to 30,000 people were converted to faith in Jesus Christ and joined that church within a couple of years? It would, cra- it would change everything. And verse 7 tells us that a large number of priests became obedient to the faith now. A large number of priests who, like the high priest before, had kept Jesus over here. I don't even want to consider it. I don't don't even want to uh, allow myself to explore it, because if I do, it'll cost me too much. But finally, they were willing to let their guard down. They were willing to investigate, knowing it would cost them everything. And they became obedient to the faith. And it did cost them. So my question is, what would it cost us if we became obedient to the faith? God turned the world of the first century upside down because a large number of people counted the cost and yet became obedient to the faith. So what would it cost us? Hang on to that question a second. I'll come back to it. Let me tell you another story out of Jesus' life and then I'll put them together. In Matthew 8, Jesus encounters a centurion, a Roman soldier, a leader of uh, legions of Roman soldiers and the man tells Jesus that he has a servant at home who's sick and he's concerned about him. And Jesus says, I'll, I'll go. I'll, let's, let's go to your house. I'll heal your servant. And the centurion objects and stops him and says, Lord, I do not have desire to have you come under my roof. Not worthy for that. But you just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this. And he does it. And he says, if you just say the word, he'll be healed. And the Bible says later in Matthew 8, you can look at it, that Jesus marveled at his faith. I don't remember a single other time in Scripture where it says, Jesus marveled at someone's faith. But he marveled at this man's faith. And I would suggest to you that, that four-word phrase could do more to change your life and mine than maybe any other four-word phrase I can think of. Just say the word. What, what would your life look like? What would God do differently with you if he knew you had just say the word faith? That if he just said it, you would do it. Like, how could he lead you differently? How could he provide for you differently? How could he, he, he walk through life with you if he knew you had that kind of faith? Let's think about it bigger. What would happen if not just one of us or a few of us, what would happen if a group of us, like a group like this, had a a faith where they said, we have just say the word faith. And if God says it, we're going to do it. What would that look like if a group had that kind of faith? I would suggest to you that we've already read exactly what it would look like if a large number of people all decided to become obedient to the faith. We've already looked at what would happen. The world would literally be turned upside down and it would never be the same if a group of us decided to have that kind of faith. Let me get a little more direct, a little more in your business, if you will. What would happen if you and I became obedient like that? What would happen if you and I decided to, to have just say the word Faith. And that God knew in our life he could say the word and we would do it and we'd be devoted to that. What would that look like for you? Well, I think the Bible tells us. So if you have your Bible, I want you to look at one verse with me. It's in Acts chapter 2. Page 744. By the way, as we're going through these next couple weeks, I encourage you to read in the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible reading you're doing, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Read, Read through the book of Acts. It's a great account a series of accounts, a history of the early church, and I think you'd be blessed and challenged by it, especially if you haven't read it uh, recently or at all. Acts chapter two. I, w- I want us to read one verse in verse forty-two, and it's a it's a powerful verse. So we're going to tease it out a little bit, and then we'll we'll skip ahead. Acts chapter two, verse forty-two, on page seven forty-four says, "They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread." and to prayer. As you're looking at that verse, I want, I want you to explore it with me a little bit and ask an important question. What is the verb in that sentence? Now, some of you said, I haven't taken English class in years. Uh, what's the action item? What's, what's being done? What's the, what's the verb in this passage? There's, there's a lot of, if you look at it, there's a lot of really action-oriented things happening, teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer, but there's only one verb. Do you notice that? It's the word devoted. Now, when they devoted, they devoted themselves to teaching. They devoted themselves to breaking of bread, to fellowship, to prayer. But devoted is the only thing they did. And if you and I are going to be obedient to the faith that God calls us to, it's going to involve a heavy dose of devotion. Now, I think if you're like me, and maybe you're better than me, if you hear something like that, the first thing you do is go, Now, wait a minute. I don't have any extra time in my life for something new. I don't have time for a new set of devotions. But the reality, if I'm honest with myself, is I devote myself to things all the time. We devote ourselves to our jobs. We devote ourselves to fitness. or We devote ourselves to our kids. We devote ourselves to our favorite sports team or our favorite television show. We devote lots of time or energy or thoughts or money to all kinds of things all the time. And if we're going to become obedient to the faith... It's going to require a heavy dose of devotion to that which matters most. So let me tease out what they devoted themselves to. It says they devoted themselves first to the apostles' teaching. And if you want to have a just-say-the-word type faith, it's going to require you to to devote some attention, some time, some energy to the words of God. You need to find ways to to read it. Uh, Get a reading plan, maybe, or, or read through a book of the Bible, the, the gospels are great. If you don't know where to start, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. In fact, Luke uh, wrote Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and then he wrote Acts. You could read those two back to back and get a picture of the early church as well. But but find an opportunity. Choose to devote yourself to reading regularly. Find a good teacher that you can listen to. There's all kinds of uh, podcasts you know online. You can you can come to this church. We would love to teach you. You can do that here. If you don't if you don't understand something, find somebody who's a little further ahead from you and say, Hey, let me. Can you help me understand this passage? You've got to devote yourself, that's where it starts, to the words of God. Second, devote yourself to fellowship. The Greek word translated fellowship here is the Greek word koinonia, and it literally means partnership, which is more than just like hanging out. It means you're joining with someone else or a group of people to achieve something. I think one of the reasons many Americans find the church unsatisfactory, unappealing is because they've confused fellowship with a cruise ship where all their needs are met and they're just there for the enjoyment versus a battleship where everyone has a role to play and we're all moving forward together. And koinonia is closer to the battleship analogy than the the cruise ship analogy. We're we're on a mission, and people in this day had lots of opposition against them. Today it's just so easy. It is more cruise ship feeling. But in those days, if you decided to become a Christian, if you decided to devote yourself to God, it was going to cost you a lot. And so they had to band together to, to work together. If you want Wellspring to have a more significant place in your life, give it a more significant place in your life. Devote yourself to being a partner with us in the gospel. Devote yourself to to being more than just a participant, more than an observer. Devote yourself to being a part of it. Let's devote ourselves to seeing this happen together. Let's fill Spring Hill with the teaching of God. Third, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. I think this is funny. I didn't do this on purpose. There's like a theme here, right? Last week I say the way you can honor God is to go to Texas Roadhouse and buy some rolls and weigh them before the Lord and then give them to me so I can get fat. That's how I said you could do that last week. This week I'm saying you can devote yourself to God by devoting yourself to breaking bread. It's a theme. Apparently I like, apparently I like bread, um, which is okay. Um, but They were devoted in their day. Don't just skip past this. They were devoted in their day to carving out time in their life to eat with other people, to eat with Christians, to encourage their faith. We're so isolated today. But they were devoted to spending time together, just socially interacting with one another. Most of our lives today, I don't know of very many, if any, who are, who are devoted enough to connecting with other believers over a shared meal. This is a priority I mean, Luke, when he's describing the four main things the church did, one of them was eat together. We've missed that. That's not a big focus of uh, the Christian life today. I think one of Satan's chief strategies is to convince us that God's ways are boring or painful or hurtful, that we won't enjoy them. And yet God wants us to live a life that's flourishing. And he says you need to spend more time being devoted to getting together and eating together and spending time that way. I mean, in fact, I would say to you, and this I don't have a Bible reference for this, but I think it's true. If you're not doing any of the things I'm getting ready to say, maybe start with this one. Like if I, if you're not reading the Bible at all, and you're not you're not uh, taking time to be a partner with us, start by just eating with some other Christians to to be encouraged. Devote yourself to breaking bread with another family in the church this week. In fact, I want to encourage you on the way out the door in a minute to grab somebody that you're friends with and say, hey, let's go to eat together sometime this week. It will never be easier than today because they've heard me say this too. Like they've heard me say it. Are they going to tell you no? I mean, they're going to tell you yes. Ask somebody else to dinner. Maybe go to Texas Roadhouse and share some rolls together. Take a picture and tag me in it. That would be great. I'd love to see that on social media. By the way, the manager at Texas Roadhouse really should send me a gift card. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> Last week, I'm telling him to buy rolls. This week, th- I think all the long lines at Texas Roadhouse are because of me. So you're welcome for that. Um, I, I don't know what's even happening. Okay. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and they devoted themselves, lastly, to prayer. Now, some of you are prayer experts. You're champions. You, you pray far more than I do, and we need you to be praying you know, that's not a, well, I can't do anything else, I'll pray. Like, that's the most important thing you could do. We're so appreciative of that. Pray more. But I know a lot of us don't pray as much as we think we ought to, or maybe you don't even know where to start. You're not a praying person. So I, let, me, let me give you a prayer this week, a, a short prayer that you can memorize that will tie all this together, that will help you be devoted to the Bible and the partnership and the fellowship if you would start your day, every day this week, with this simple four-word prayer, just say the word. So as you drive to work uh, tomorrow, pray to God, God, today, when I'm at work, just say the word, and I'll do it. For somebody discouraged, somebody who needs to be, be encouraged or listened to, somebody who needs to hear about Jesus, for somebody who needs help you just say the word, God, today at work. I'll do it. I, I, my eyes are open for you to influence me to do whatever it is. As, as, you, as you go into a meeting, just say the word, God. I will listen to you. As you pull up to the ball field with your kids, just say the word, God. I'm not going to be just on my phone and be listening for you to encourage somebody or talk to somebody or help somebody. Be devoted to prayer, you know, the next, the next verse, if you still have your Bible open, if not, I, I'll, I'll catch you up here. Verse 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Verse 43 says, Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. I started to make that a fifth point. And then I realized that they didn't do the filling. They, they didn't fill themselves with awe. They were filled with awe. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer, and the result of that devotion was they were filled with awe. God did the filling. I think far too many of us go through our week and through our life not being filled with a sense of awe, and, and we don't have spiritual awe because we don't take a lot of spiritual risks. We don't have a lot of spiritual awe because we don't take a lot of spiritual dreams and chase those. And without spiritual risks and spiritual dreams, you're not going to have much spiritual awe. You're, you're not going to see God come through because you didn't invite him to come through. You didn't, you didn't put yourself in a situation where he had to come through. Let me say it a different way. If the highlight of your week spiritually is listening to me, I know me. I'm not that good. You need more than that if you want spiritual awe. You're not going to get that from me. You'll be going through your life from the sidelines, and I'll try to encourage you along the way. But if I'm the highlight, we're all in deep trouble. Instead, try this week to devote yourself, take some small steps, to devote yourself to the Apostles' teaching, to the fellowship. Go to Life Track next week and find out your spot. Apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I don't know how many of you, I'm, I'm, I'm scared to ask for a show of hands. So I'm not going to do that. I'm, I don't know how many of you are basketball fans. I, I know one of the things that really discouraged me when I moved from Indiana 20 years ago was that like eight people in Middle Tennessee like basketball. And it was, it was hard for me coming from Indiana where every driveway has a basketball hoop. On, you know, you just see that Hoosiers wasn't that far off. Let me just say that. Um, uh, I always tell people I grew up in a town of 5,000 and our high school basketball gym seated 5,000 people. There's a reason for it. Um, And so I I moved to Middle Tennessee and and no one cares about basketball. It's all football or or soccer, which anyway, I can't believe, I can't even say that. (laughs) Fine. So uh, it's the wrong round ball. But but this weekend is the SEC tournament in Nashville, which is kind of ironic. And then March Madness begins, you know, shortly after. And this year used to be, uh, this time of year was a big devotion for my life. Took a lot of time. And when I was in high school, I so wanted to be a basketball player. I mean, I worked and I worked. It wasn't for lack of effort that I I failed. I would have been a great basketball player if I had been just a little bit taller and a little bit stronger and could shoot a little better and play better uh, handle with the basketball and and was a little quicker and could jump higher. That's the only thing that was holding me back. The devotion, I had the devotion in spades and somewhere through high school, it's like God said to me, son, I just didn't give you those things. I'm just sorry, you just, you know, you did the best you can with that, but I got other plans for you than the NBA. And, uh, and so, you know, here we are, right? So all these years later. And, and I remember, sometimes I'll, I'll, read, I'll read passages like this, and I'll give myself an internal guilt trip. You know, the, the old story, like you watch the Olympics and you think, I, I can't do that unless I do what they do. Like I can't compete like they compete unless I'm gonna practice like they practice and it's ridiculous. And the SEC tournament or the March Mad is the same way. You're not gonna have those kinds of successes if you don't practice like they do. But the reality is, even if I did that, I would never dunk the basketball. <laughs> like that's just not gonna, that's not in the cards for me to dunk the basketball. I'm never gonna be that guy. But this is not a guilt trip week because you and I can do every one of those things. We can open the Bible and read a little bit every day. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to do that. Read a little bit of the Bible every day. You don't have to be some theologian to partner with other believers to do something positive in the world. We'd love to help you find a spot. You don't have to be some supernatural person to eat a meal with another church family, encourage each other. We all like to eat. You don't have to be a theologian to say to God, just say the word, God. God. I'm, my eyes are open for you to speak to me we can all devote ourselves to the apostles teaching the fellowship the breaking of bread and prayer and when we do God has all the strength we need and we'll see some spiritual awe in our day because the same God who did that in their day still wants to do it today he just needs to find a group of people who are willing to s- listen when he says the word and I want to challenge that to be us. Why don't you bow your head and let's pray together. God, I pray that you would find just say the word faith this week in us. That if there's somebody in our orbit who needs encouragement, somebody who's going through a tough time, you, you'd prompt us and we'd say yes. If there's a need that needs met, you'd prompt us and we'd say yes. But God, I also prayed on just the, the everyday mundane type things that we would... In the morning, we'd pull out the Bible and we'd give you a few minutes just to read it and ask you to speak. That we'd partner with you to make a difference in this world. That we would, we would fellowship with other people eating together a common meal. We'd, we'd take a moment to pray again and again throughout the day looking for you to lead us, to inspire us, to provide for us. May you find that kind of people here in our midst today So the church will explode just like it did then for your glory and your honor and for the benefit of this dark world that's so desperately looking for light. We're grateful, God, for all that you've done in their day and for what you want to do today in ours. And we pray to you in the name of Jesus.